Our Old Testament lesson is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It is David's encounter with Bathsheba. We've just read Psalm 51, which is David's response, his repentance from his sin. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do come to your word this morning and as we approach a difficult topic, we ask for help. We need your spirit to enlighten us, to illumine us, and to strengthen us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sermon hardly in need of introduction. There's not a whole lot of sermon hooks necessary to get people's attention. We have the seventh commandment today. Do not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5 18. We'll be ranging throughout your Bibles today to look at how the whole canon of the Old Testament and New Testament develops this command and what it means for us today. And for many people, they find it indecent that the church would speak publicly about such matters. Isn't this something so secret and so private that the church just needs to leave it alone and let people work this out in their homes? 
For many others, they just find it irrelevant that the church talks about such a thing. The Bible is an old, bygone book. It's unenlightened. It speaks about sex, but it has nothing to do with us today, so why listen to it? What could the Bible possibly do to enlighten us when it comes to our personal plumbing and how we are built? It has nothing to say. And so the church finds itself oftentimes today hung between the prudishness of Victorian-era mores and the sexual revolution. And we can find ourselves backed into a corner. But it's from this corner that we can also speak. Because it's not that we have to remain silent. What we must remember is that sex is God's good gift. That it's not taboo that it's not off-limits. Our sexuality is not something that we need to be embarrassed by or to apologize for. And that in this corner, we need to learn how to celebrate the gift of sex. That God grants it to us. He creates us to be beings who smell, who taste, who touch, who love, who feel. And that God gives us sexuality as part of this package. And that simultaneously we recognize that our world is broken. And that brokenness also pervades the sexual life and our sexuality. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian, he was the prime minister and he was sometimes a pastor. He wrote this about sin. Listen carefully to it. He says, Itself powerless, without creative ideas of its own, sin lives solely by plagiarizing the ideas of God. And Kuiper captures it, that we don't need to be embarrassed by our sexuality, that what is wrong with sexuality is the plagiarism of it, what sin has done with it, and all of its brokenness, taking it in the wrong directions, taking it down wrong paths that lead to destruction. And so that said, this morning, let's get to what does the command mean? What is the command, what is the goal of the command not to commit adultery? And when we look at the whole breadth of the Bible, I think we find three things that are compelling to us about the goal of this commandment. And the first, very simply, is it is to create stable families. That is, that when you look at the command not to commit adultery, it is about securing the life of the family. If you turn with me to Leviticus 18. It is the third book in your Bible. It is here and also in Deuteronomy 22 and 23 that the seventh commandment is expanded on and statutes and ordinances are given to us. But in Leviticus 18, when you take in the whole of what is said, what becomes plain is that sex is limited to the union between a husband and wife because sex is something so powerful and important. You see, it's something like nuclear energy. In its proper context, it is explosive and does an incredible amount of good when contained. But outside of containment, it's incredibly destructive and wreaks havoc. And so Leviticus 18 talks about the proper place of sex. Who is to have sex and who is not to? And so it's concerned with these things for the sake of the family, the union between husband and wife, and any children that may result from that, keeping down jealousy and rivalry, not allowing those impurities to 
seep into the family. We've already seen in the fifth commandment to honor father and mother that the family was the essential, central unit of Israel's society, and it continues to be that way for the church today. And so the commandment is designed to protect that central nucleus, to protect it from harm and from any invasion that would seek to jeopardize that. So the big question for us is what is it that destabilizes the family? Is it just the adultery, or is there something behind the adultery that oftentimes creates family instability? As a young pastor, it was the second wedding that I was asked to perform. I would oftentimes receive the miscellaneous weddings of people who had been historical members of the church, and I was asked to give judgment as to whether they should be married or not. And so a young couple came And we sat down in which I was just attempting to understand their Christian experience and to hear about their relationship. And very quickly, I noticed that I was in deep water and I didn't quite know how to respond. Then I learned that uh, the man in front of me, that he uh, he was divorced. And then as I put together the details of the relationship, it was clear that uh, his wife had left him and he was blaming her, but yet... She had also left because he had had an affair, and it was with the woman who was now sitting beside him. And so I was a young, very green pastor at this point, and I was trying to figure out there on the spot how to respond, thinking through what needed to be said. I began to ask the guy about his adultery and if he saw any problem with that, and he said no. I don't. You don't know what it was like to live with my first wife. And so I asked the fiancé, I said, how do you feel about that? She was quiet and demure. And then I looked back at the man, I said, let me tell you how I think she feels. She knows you did it once, and she's worried that you're going to do it twice. She looked at me and said, yes. And friends, that is the issue when it comes to why God would keep sex in the marriage. It is about trust. Because it violates when we go outside the bounds of where God assigns sex to take place. And as Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, to keep the marriage bed undefiled, when we break trust, we break promises and we break vows, we break oaths that we've taken. And now it is in a world where we're not sure whether we can entrust ourselves to anyone. And in this most sacred and intimate of commitments, when we go outside, it introduces this whole entire issue. And God in His law is not attempting to be a prude. He's attempting to keep us from that dangerous world where there is no trust and no fidelity. And so this is the goal of the commandment, is to create stable family. But the second goal of the commandment is also to build a good community. If you turn to Jeremiah 7, we find here the prophet critiquing Israel at a later point in its life. We're reading from verses 5 through 10. Jeremiah says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, 
Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? And the prophet builds out a scene where the commandments of God, and especially the second table of the law, murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting, that all of those commandments were being broken and shattered. And it is that kind of society that God doesn't want us to build. He doesn't want us to build a community where there is no trust, where you can't take someone at their word, where an oath is not an oath and a vow is not a vow. You remember that Jeremiah begins in verse 5, if you truly execute justice with one another. That he sees all the sins of Israel in their non-neighborliness, their lack of taking care of the neighbor, and particularly in protecting their, their neighbor's marriages. That that is a matter of justice. It's doing what's right. And he sees that that has been shattered and that everyone is out for their own. That they're interested in their own good, out for their own pleasure, not the interest and pleasure of their neighbor. And to inhabit a healthy, life-giving sex life means that we have to serve the community around us by being sexually disciplined. And friends, that is a contribution to the community. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says the husband is to give the marital rights to the wife and the wife likewise. That we're benefiting the entire community, helping the entire community when husband and wife live in that way with one another. And so we are building up the neighborhood, having in a neighborhood of integrity and truthfulness, of vow-taking and honesty, a good world where we're not out for our own. Now, the third goal of this commandment, it's ultimately to promote intimacy. The command comes to us in a negative way, and that's the way that many of us are used to framing it. Perhaps it's because of the youth group that we grew up in, where most of what we were used to hearing about sex was no and for many people, they never heard anything positive said about sex, that it was something dirty and taboo that you will deal with later. And the problem was they never learned a proper view of it. And friends, that's a tragedy, and it's not actually the way the Bible works. If you'll turn to Proverbs 5 and 6. Proverbs is a brilliant book. It's instruction from a father to a son or to a parent to a child. And in chapter 5, you find very explicit material from the father to the son about protecting himself from adultery. He warns him. It is stated in the negative. But then in verse 15, there is a turn that takes place where there is a positive prescription given. 
Follow with me in verses 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And do you see the positive turn that's taken there? That the positive turn is not just to say no, but it's to say a gigantic yes to the proper bounds for sexual faithfulness, where it is to be contained, where delight is to be had. And the proverb is, calls it a cistern, a well flowing up with water that's deep and satisfying, that can give you everything you need, that can quench all of your thirst. And he's asking his son the question, why wouldn't you seek to be satisfied there in the intimacy that God makes available to you? Graham Greene is one of my favorite English authors. He was also a spy for the British government. He traveled around and wrote incredible novels. He was a Christian, but he was a man who also struggled a great deal. And by his own confession, he struggled a great deal in the area of sex. He wrote one novel exploring this, asking himself basically the question, what is at the core of my own difficulties? The novel is entitled The End of the Affair. There are three main characters, a man named Maurice, a man named Henry, and a woman named Sarah. Maurice and Henry are both in love with Sarah. Henry is married to Sarah, and Maurice begins an affair with her. Sarah ends up breaking off the affair with Maurice, and then shortly after that, she dies. It's a very sad story, and then oddly, Henry and Maurice end up in a conversation. They are discussing the loss of Sarah. Henry asks him, what did you think of me? And then listen to how he answers and forgive the frankness of the language. He answered, I believe that you were her pimp. You pimped her with ignorance. You pimped her by never learning how to make love with her, so she had to look elsewhere. You pimped by giving opportunities. You pimped by being a bore and a fool. And Green goes straight after it as to what is oftentimes at the heart of marital affairs, of going outside the bounds that God assigns. And it is some type of stagnation. It is some type of boredom. And Green says that when we do so, we are basically pimping out our spouse, that we're making them available, that we're opening them to this. And friends, that's what we have to recognize about the seventh commandment that it is a command to promote intimacy, to pursue your spouse, to not allow relational stagnation, no matter the number of years that accumulate between us, no matter the difficulties that we face, that we not allow those dynamics to stifle the intimacy that God has assigned between husband and wife. 
Discipline is necessary. When I talk with young married couples, they are often surprised by this piece of advice that I learned from an older mentor. Because I'll tell them on the eve of their wedding, I want you to know something. That the same discipline that it has required for you not to have sex prior to your marriage is going to be the same discipline required of you to have a healthy and fruitful sex life for the remainder of your marriage. Now, to a man, none of them have believed me. None of them have said, yep, that sounds true. And almost to a man, they've all come back to me and said, you know what? That's true. Because they recognize to have a fruitful and life-giving interaction with your spouse of intimacy over the years requires an incredible amount of discipline that promotes intimacy. Because it's not just about sex. It is about the entire relationship. That it is how are we getting along? How are we working with one another? How are we forgiving each other? How are we working out the stress that comes with raising family, nurturing kids, paying the bills, working? And friends, that requires an incredible amount of industry and discipline and work on our behalf. Because it is in the mundane parts of life where things often fall apart for people. That boredom sets in, that regularity, and just the relentless return of Monday. And relationships disintegrate, and people begin to drink water from other wells. And God wants us to learn how to satisfy ourselves in one, and to find it satisfying and good, to chase that well down into its depths. My pastor, who was counseling me, during premarital counseling myself, he said, you know, Chuck, you will find that you're going to be an individual just like any other man who could read the first chapter of a lot of books. He said, my challenge to you in your sex life is to read the entire book. Don't give yourself the knowledge of the first chapter of many books. Give yourself to reading one entire book, knowing one woman in faithfulness. And pursue that and know that book. Know how to read it. Go through the rise and fall of its, of its narrative drama. Read the whole thing and absorb it. That's what God invites us into. Take that journey. Know that path. Be disciplined in that course. And so the question for us when we understand the goal is now what does it require of us though? What does it take and what does God need to give us so that we can walk in this way? What do we need from Him? First thing is that we need to uphold the mystery of sex. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul here is dealing with a very dysfunctional and broken church. And if you want to talk about a sermon that would make people blush, 1 Corinthians 6 is it. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And Paul here builds off of Genesis 2, and he works off of this concept of then when husband and wife are joined together in a covenanted union, when they are married, that this is the proper location and context for sexual activity. And that there is a mysterious union that takes place that goes beyond just the physical connection of bodies. That there is a spiritual and mysterious thing that takes place when we give ourselves to another person completely and wholly. And Paul is vying for this idea that sex is far beyond the physical. That we can't just look at it as a natural process. That there's something deeply spiritual at play here. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult points in our own cultural moment because sex has turned into such a casual topic. It's trampled on and just treated as an ordinary and normal thing. And friends, we want to uphold it as something sacred. doesn't mean that it's taboo and we don't talk about it, but it means that we recognize it for all the gift that it is from God, and we learn how to sanctify it and set it apart as something special and to be treasured. The ways this is trampled on in society and the ways that it impacts the church are real. It is oftentimes very difficult today. And as a pastor who has mostly been involved with young couples throughout his career, I can say that about 70% of the couples that I have worked with prior to their wedding have already been sexually active. It was hard, and they were just reflecting the culture around them. And it does require of us, if we're going to uphold the mystery, it means that we have to be ready that when we're communicating physically and two becoming one, that we have to be ready not only to communicate physically, but to commit ourselves physically, to care for the person completely and wholly. And this is what premarital sex misunderstands. And this is where we need to encourage our children and where we need to develop them is to understand that sex is icing on the cake, that it is part of a complete commitment of one person to you, that they be flesh of your flesh and bone of your bones, that they provide for you and care for you, being wholly and completely committed. And this is one place where sex gets trampled on as casual. And perhaps the spring of much what goes on today is also found in pornography. It's a deep struggle in the church, and you can find statistics galore to justify whatever you want to say. Let's just suffice it to say that pornography's availability has made it a pervasive problem in the church. And for many people of both genders struggling with pornography, it is just thought, I'm not impacting anyone else. I'm only gratifying myself. And it's important for us to recognize that's simply not true. That when we engage with pornography, we are objectifying a person. We've turned them into a picture and an object that we relate to then on our own terms. 
And we're saying we're going to relate to that person and use them to get pleasure. And they won't be able to talk back. They won't be able to interact with us. We don't have to deal with them as a person. And they're probably photoshopped into something that's unrealistic anyway. But friends, this is what happens in pornography. Because then that objectification begins to bleed out into your relationships. When you begin to relate to men or women in that objectified fashion, the people you encounter in real life will become objects as well. You'll use them for your ends. And rather than sex being a life-giving thing between two people wholly committed to serving and loving one another, sex becomes an object for your pleasure, your gratification. And so friends, as the church, we have to know how to respond to pornography. We have to know how to respond to the devaluing of sex and of the human body. And part of that requires a discipline on our behalf. Saying that no, we want to call sacred and special that which God has given to us as gift. The second thing that we need from God in this moment is not only to understand the mystery of sex and appreciate it, but it's also to know how to diagnose our desires. You can turn with me to Matthew 5. We read this earlier in the service. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus here is intensifying the commandment. And he exposes everyone that down into the thoughts of our hearts, into our desires, is as deep as this commandment pushes. And it, brings, it puts us on notice that our desires are important. While our desires may not be the same as actions, and that is important to clarify, nonetheless, harboring desires is not a safe practice. This is what Jesus is pointing to. You can also turn to Proverbs chapter 6. In the discussion of adultery there in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And what becomes incumbent on us is to recognize that we can't harbor those coals next to us, that we can't carry fire in our bosom, that we can't hold on to thoughts and desires, that yes, there will be temptations, sexual and otherwise, that confront us all, but it is the nurturing of those, it's the cultivating of those, it's the grooming of those that we're particularly being called to pay special attention to. And that we need to learn how to then diagnose why that desire exists. What is it going on inside of us? And several years ago, I asked one of my mentors just about it. I said, what have you learned over all the years of pastoral ministry that you've had? 25 years plus. And what he told me was interesting. He says, you know, 
There is such a thing as curiosity that just leads to lustfulness, perhaps like what you read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David. But what he went on to develop is that perhaps the most dominant driving gear behind extramarital affairs is that when there is relational difficulty or hardship in a marriage, and then someone else becomes idealized very easy. That over the years and over time, in dealing with one another as husband and wife, it's very easy, as we said earlier, to go stagnant. And in that stagnancy, someone else who you don't have to live with, who you don't have to argue with about bills or what to eat or how to discipline the children or how much money is appropriate in what budget category or who gets to wash the dishes or who forgot to do the honey-do list, all the things that go into building a life and a home, all the things that you don't have to do with that person, it's easy to glamorize them and to idealize them and make them look like they are good and have it all together. And friends, when we find ourselves in that place, that's when we have to diagnose and understand that we are idealizing somebody, that we're making them something that they're not. That marriage is a lifelong commitment that requires incredible discipline and work. It also gives to us more than it ever takes from us. But we don't want to fall into the trap of saying that the pastures are, of course, greener on the other side. This is all that it says. And the Proverbs end with this admonition that that path is the way of destruction. That it leads to our own demise. And so we need to learn and be a community that diagnoses our own desires. Now the third and final piece to this, what do we need from God? Is we need to hold out on grace. That yes, we need grace from God and the world around us needs grace. This is a firm and difficult world in a sexually permissive culture. And I feel every moment of that tension. In John chapter 8, famous story of Jesus meeting a woman caught in adultery. There were men eager to execute her, as the Mosaic law said. Jesus rescues her with a clever question. And then He asked this, He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And this is crucial for us today. When we talk about the depth of sexual sin and we feel the weight of our own failures, that this is Jesus standing above a sinful and broken woman crushed by her own iniquity. And he can say, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. And that voice of Jesus today continues to ring out. And it rings out above us in all of our own sexual brokenness and sexual failures that Jesus promises grace and forgiveness. And that we need that grace to remove our broken past. All the things that we regret in this area of life. And we need that grace to go and sin no more. That God would give us the ability by His Spirit 
We are completely dependent on that to be faithful to Him in all the ways that we talked about the goal of the commandment. To be faithful to one spouse. To live in intimacy and harmony with them. The law of God, do not commit adultery, is a hammer. It crushes. It exposes. It is a mirror that we can barely look into because of our own shame. But it is that law that leads us to the grace of God, which is soft and gentle and forgives and restores and heals. We need to find those two gears, allowing us ourselves to be exposed and allowing ourselves to know the healing grace of God. To be a community that can hold that out and yet also hold forth the promise of what a life of faithfulness looks like. And so let's ask for God's help to do so.